Ledger's a writing podcast you should never feed after midnight. I'm your host, Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. Today I'm talking with writer Keeley Shinners. Their book, How to Build a Home for the End of the World, is out now from Perennial Press. Make sure you check it out. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from the, from the back of the book so you can kind of get an idea what it's about. In the midst of widespread drought, the Sorensons have been relatively sheltered in their hometown of Fox Lake, Illinois. But when all the water in their lake disappears overnight, family bonds begin to unravel. 17-year-old Mary Beth, hell-bent on saving the girl she loves, convinces her father, Donnie, to go on a road trip to California. Along the way, they meet inventors and academics, ancestors and desert healers, angels and ghosts, all while reckoning with the fault lines of their past to imagine a better future, a remade home in the world. Uh, It's an excellent uh, book. It's a, a road trip novel uh coming of age it's uh, sort of confronting some of the stuff that our, our world is going through now uh through fiction but also as you'll you'll hear when i talk to to keely um based a little bit on their own life uh some of the some of the things uh, not all of it um so that's going to come up right after this intro please give it a listen and check out keely's work uh you can find their work at keelyshinners.com as well as through perennial press my work, as always, you can go to austinrwilson.com. Uh, you can also read the most recent short story that I had published, which is called Hate to Meet You at Ahoy Comics' website. It is published online, and you can see the the fantastic illustration that uh, Peter Bag... I never know if it's Peter Bag or Peter Baggy. Well, you, you'll see the, uh, the illustration when you get there. Um, it's fantastic, and I am insanely honored to have it alongside my story. So go check that out. You can also follow me on Twitter at austinrwilson and at Ledger Podcast. Um, or is it Ledger Podcast or Ledger Books? Anyway, follow me on Twitter. Um, but as for now, check out this interview with Keely Shinners and let me know what you think about it. Today on the show, we've got Keely Shinners, a first-time novelist. Their book, How to Build a Home for the End of the World, is out from Perennial Press uh, in May of 2022. Right now, Keely, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Austin. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, as I said, first novel. Um, so that's a, a big thing we want to we want to talk about um, the the process from starting, finding a publisher, uh, mm. getting to where you uh, are now. Um, that's the the big thing. Uh, is this the first novel that you've that you've completed? This is the first novel that I've completed. Um, there is a secret novel out there somewhere of, uh, sorry, not novel, a book of short stories uh, that I wrote before this novel, but this is my first novel um, and, my, and my first book that I'm putting out into the world. Is it exciting? Scary? What, what, are, you, what are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. It's a little bit scary. I feel I'm, I'm, I, I've been sitting with this particular novel for the past five years. I've been working on it. Um, so it has gone through the ringer of of my doubt and denial and yeah. my perfectionism. So uh, I think the novel that I have put out into the world is 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 ready to be out there. So let's talk about that five years. Um, is that mm. what what went into to making it be five years? That total happenstance was it really your perfectionism and and. Your, your dedication to making it as good as possible? Were you looking for an agent? Like, kind of walk us through what those five years in, entailed as far as waiting. Sure. So um, the book started, the book is called How to Build a Home for the End of the World. And uh, it is a dystopian road trip novel. Uh, it's about a, a father and a daughter who go on a road trip at the end of the world and lots of other things, queer kinships, uh, uh, climate climate crisis, the the whole works, and it started out uh, in 2017. I went on a road trip with my father. We drove from our hometown, which is Fox Lake, Illinois, to Los Angeles, California, where I was going to university at the time. Uh, I was 20 years old, uh, and on the wo- road trip. I I was thinking as we were driving from 
from ghost town to ghost town because we kind of did this round 66 uh road trip together my dad and i as we were driving from ghost town to ghost town from one like beige motel room to another drinking still cups of coffee uh looking at all of these nondescript landscapes out the window, I had this idea in my mind of, you know, you probably could write a novel about a road trip between a father and a daughter or about a girl's first love or about a family falling apart or about whatever Mm -hmm. and tell it as close to the grain of truth as possible and say that it's happening at the end of the world and probably nobody would bat an eye because so much of our present world, especially in America, it felt like at that time, uh, is already so dystopian. So so the idea was was sparked on this road trip with my, my dad in, in 2017. And so did you start writing any on that trip? Yes. So I, I, I wrote... In my notebook, these three prepositions uh, for this for this novel that took place at the end of the world, and the prepositions were about uh, people still lived at the end of the world, and they found ways to survive it, and even found ways for joy. The second proposition was uh, that the body by which I mean a collective of bodies or bodies that rubble beneath us unacknowledged finds the capacity to heal. And the third proposition is that love in the end remains important after all. So that was what I started with. I wrote that down in my notebook on this road trip with my dad. And those propositions ended up becoming the thesis, I suppose, for how to build a home for the end of the world. And initially I imagined them as being the first thing that you read in the book, but actually they're the spoiler alert, last thing (laughs) that you read in the book. Um, But those, those, those kernels followed me through those five years of actually finding what is the story that I want to tell? How do I want to tell it? How do I write a novel in the first place? Because I was 20 years old when, when, when this happened and, didn't know anything about the world as most 20 year olds do. Um, so I was, I was finding out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and, and how to write a book of this magnitude. Yes. Uh, you actually touched on a lot of stuff that I, that I was already wondering about and specifically the, the universal body, um, Mm. where you're, you're speaking about the, the body and the, one of the very first pages you see in the book when, when you open it is, that it is being presented as a case study of, of post-apocalyptic mm. times by this doctor named uh, Dr. Maria Camphor. Um, I, I, I want to get into that too, but first I want to talk about the universal body because uh, Dr. Maria Camphor is presenting the, the case study to uh, a commit or a place called the international program for the advancement and longevity of the universal body. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means how it how it relates to the the events of the novel and I guess kind of the the engine of of what's driving the story uh, within the mm. book. Mm. Um, I, I'll I'll talk a little bit about the process of coming to that idea. And when I conceptualized the idea in the beginning, what I really wanted was a dystopian world that was kind of counter to the the 1984s and the Brave New Worlds um, that that kind of saw collective co- collectivism and collectivity uh, as as something very central to how the the end of the world is going to be structured because often in in dystopian stories uh, the the power structure is very fascist or it's very controlling. And initially I wanted the power structure at the end of the world to be collectivist and to embrace this idea of the universal body, which was that we're all enveloped in each other and we're all responsible for each other. 
And I initially conceptualized the power structure in in my novel as something almost utopian as opposed to dystopian. And then as I was writing, I realized how this, this power structure that I created, they're called the collective in the book, the collective. Um, and, and the universal body is important to them and, and how they structure the society, which purports to be egalitarian and to have values of equality and uh, believes in this universal body as something that, that everyone should aspire to, that we're all working not for ourselves as individuals, but for the universal body. And then somehow they, almost outside of my control, turned out to be more villains in the book than I originally intended, where their collective, their organization, is almost more concerned about their own sustainability and their longevity over the the actual people who they're purporting to to help and to serve. So the uni- the idea of the universal body where where everybody is responsible for each other and everybody is enveloped in each other and and should love each other at the end of the day. That's something that I believe in wholeheartedly. But something about the way that the collective in my book took that was almost as if like everybody must serve us and our longevity right. and our sustainability. So then this idea of the universal body uh, becomes a little bit more dark and they're almost exploiting people and, and, and using other people's bodies to fund their own body. Um, that, that was something that I didn't expect to happen. And then, yeah. <laughs> and, then it, and then it happened in the book. I'm curious when it happened uh, in the, the course of you writing it, because, uh, you know, as it's listed on your website and on, and on the book, you're from Fox Lake, Illinois. Like you said, you know, it's your, your dad and, and you were, were taking this trip. So I, I'm curious when that shifted for you. If um, having been away from home, because you no longer live in Illinois now, you know, you live... Uh, somewhere else now. So I'm curious when that shifted for the collective and if you can see any correlation between that story shifting and maybe things that you had experienced or things that you had learned um, after so much time had passed in your life. Mm, Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, so I live in Cape Town now, Cape Town, South Africa. And um, that, that, that part of the question I'll answer, which is that, I I grew up in a very small town in the Midwest, as I think you did as well, Austin. But I did, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I grew, a, I grew up in a very small town in the Midwest, white family, like very conventional situation there. Um, beautiful family, love my family to bits. Uh, no no uh, resentment here. But uh, when I put when I had this idea of I'm going to write a road trip about the end of the world and I'm going to star some versions of me and my dad. Yeah. Um, that kind of put this idea of my nuclear white Midwestern family under pressure. And I realized that at the end of the world, their family situation was not going to be able to function as they previously thought or as how they imagined their life was going to go. They were kind of forced into producing new kinships, new communities with people outside of their, their nuclear family. Um, and, you know, maybe that is something that I learned growing up was that I couldn't rely on my family to provide me all of the, the things that I needed in my life, I, I found community and I found family in friends and in other communities all over the world. And that's something beautiful about human experiences that mm-hmm. uh, you can, you, you, you have your family and you trust in your family, but they're not the end all be all of your life. You can make family elsewhere. And, and 
hopefully those two things can exist side by side, which is something that I, I wanted to uh, convey in the novel. But definitely at the end of the world, when resources are scarce, the nuclear family is put under pressure and we're, have to, we're forced into developing new kinships and developing new communities where your responsibility is not just to your mom and dad or your sister or your grandma. Like your responsibility is to something larger than yourself, larger than your family. Right. Yeah. And I, th- I think the, the aspect of, of taking a road trip as the world is ending or, or has ended in some ways mm-hmm. um, also broaches that concept of, your, your responsibility to something larger. It's such an interesting um, like addition to, to this sort of dire circumstance, you know, Donnie and, and Mary Beth, the two main characters, um, they, they realize their water's gone. Mm. Um, and that is terrifying, but then mm. placing a road trip on top of that, um, which is always associated with fun um, adventure um, kind of walk me through the idea of those things bleeding into each other, where it's like, holy crap, the world's ending, and then let's have a road trip. Um, mm. wh- what were your challenges? Were there challenges as you're, as you're telling that story where it's like, okay, they're on a road trip, like they're going to come across all these characters, they're going to experience you know, growth and all these things that we associate with adventure and fun, but they are literally fleeing you know, death? Sure. Yes. So I guess you could take like a Cormac McCarthy, the road as, as, as one example of this road trip at the end of the world where everything is violent and dark and they need to go somewhere else. And everyone that they meet along the way is, is violent and dark and is kind of on to get them. Um, My characters were definitely put under pressure where they couldn't stay where their hometown was, they needed to go somewhere else. And that need wasn't just for resources. It was also about love. And it was maybe also about running away from their past. And, um, and, but as they went on this road trip, I didn't want it to be a fully like dark, Cormac McCarthy, like everybody who they meet is going to be on to get them situation. I did right. want it to be a little bit fun and maybe even a little bit campy. Um, yeah. I had this book next to me as I was writing uh, part two of the novel, which is the road trip, which was a uh, route 66 uh, travel guide and all of the like kitschy landmarks that the travel guide is telling you to go and visit. I was like, okay, I want Johnny and Mary Beth to go to the same landmarks, but instead of them just like going and looking at it, I want them to go there and have something like bizarre happen to them. So uh, for example, uh, they pass through Joliet, Illinois and the travel book says, this is the home of Stateville prison. So I was like, okay, they're not just going to go to the prison they're going to be kind of like manipulated into going to the prison and the prison isn't a prison. It's a borehole where they're trying to dig for fresh water and they almost get stuck down there or uh, they pass through Amarillo, Texas, where there's an art installation by the ant farm that they did in, I think the seventies where they buried 10 Cadillacs in the ground uh, this is another Route 66 tourist destination. I was like, okay, cool. They're going to pass through there, and then there are going to be these performance artists that rob them at gunpoint and steal their car for a performance piece. So uh, I definitely put them under a lot of pressure, but almost with like a fun kitsch element to it running through the whole thing. Do you think that outweighs the the idea that they are, you know, road tripping through the end of the world? Or is it, do you think they're, those are balanced uh, throughout the novel or, or one takes precedent over the other? Well, I think that, um, I think a road trip at the end of the day 
you know, that narrative structure is something that, that for a, a road trip at the end of the day is a narrative structure forces your characters yeah. into dealing with their own internal battles. And because they're stuck in a car with another person dealing with those internal battles with each other and, and negotiating that. And for Donnie and Mary Beth, the end of the world definitely adds an, maybe more stakes to it because they get hungry and they get thirsty and because they're hungry and they're thirsty, then they get headaches and they get belly aches and they're not themselves. They're more, maybe more prone to madness than they would have otherwise been. But at the end of the day, that road trip narrative of, I have no other choice but to deal with myself and you have no other choice but to deal with yourself and the tension between am I going to deal with myself or am I going to run away from my problems and how much of that internal battle is going to be witnessed by this other person who I can't run away from in the car with me. Right. That, that remains the, the most important part of their negotiation throughout the road trip uh almost kind of regardless of the end of the world because the end of the world in my book is kind of or as i understood it is almost the the undertone it's not the catalyst that spawns all of these if like tragic events like at the end of the world and i think we know this implicitly because we are kind of living at the end of the world at the end of the world we still like have daddy issues. We fall in love. <laughs> right. We get heartbroken. We, you know, these are our main immediate concerns. And the end of the world is kind of this like foggy world outside of our personal lives. I think that's how Donnie and Mary Beth experienced it. I, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and also, like, your, I think your book really confronts the idea that the end of the world is this perception. It's this thing that we project on the world, like that there is the end of the world still has a tomorrow. And I mm. think that's one of the things that your book showcases. It's like, like you just said, you know, Oh yeah, the world's ending, but Oh my gosh, my dad won't shut up. And this <laughs> is horrific. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. that's, I mean, it's funny because like you said, you, you, you're always there. It's the end of the world, but, Yep, you're still dealing with the same problems. Um, mm. One thing that I've, I, as you were talking about those, the five years of you, you know, getting the book finished and you live in Cape Town now instead of Illinois, is there an aspect of the book, um, the story, even that structure, the road trip structure that mirrors you discovering the wider world as you leave? not just Illinois in the Midwest, which, you know, you and I know what the Midwest is um, yeah. and ending up in a place that's w way different um, in a lot of ways. Is, is there an aspect of the novel where you are discovering these things about yourself outside of writing it and then translating that into the story over those five years? Mm. Yeah. Excellent question. Thank you. Um, I think that, uh, a lot of what I put into this novel was trying to force myself to grow up. So I wrote it between the ages of 20 and 26. I'm 26 years old now. So I, I put into Mary Beth all of my like childhood insecurities of being like a young white girl who grew up in a small town in the Midwest, like I am naive and spunky and enthusiastic and uh, maybe a bit stupid. And <laughs> um, I, I, I put all of that into her and I put her guilt, I put my guilt into her. You know, her guilt is something that she really needs to reckon with. Uh, I put that feeling of 
I need to get over my idea of myself as innocent. Yeah. When I'm not, I'm not innocent. Uh, even as a sheltered white person growing up in America, I am not an innocent historical person. Like I need to deal with, you know, what my ancestors have done. What, what, what do I actually mean to this world? Right. I put, I put all of that into, into Mary Beth. She was kind of the, the avatar, maybe even an alter ego at a certain stage. Yeah. And, uh, then I also needed a, a, a different character in the book who was going to be the writer, the person who could step outside of that, that life, that history, and could look it in the face and be a little bit objective and a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and, and that's Maria Camphor. And... Uh, yeah, I won't give too much away about her character, but right. Uh, I named her after I named her after um, there was a woman who had a phone number before me. Before me, <laughs> and her name was Maria Camphor. Oh, that's awesome! I would often get these calls saying Maria Camphor has not paid her bill, her electric <laughs> bill, or whatever, and sudden like suddenly this character Maria Camphor became this like alter ego for me of this older person. Maybe she wasn't paying her bills. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's fun. But this, this older person who could step outside of my childhood self and look her in the face and read her a little bit and, yeah. and read the family and read the history. And she has her own stuff that she's carrying at the end of the book. But, uh, yeah, the process of writing the book was definitely the process of maybe even compartmentalizing those two characters of of the childhood and the the writer the writer self. Yeah, the author well, self. And I think, I mean, having grown up in the Midwest myself, um, learning the things that I've never been exposed to, like I can remember those moments where I'm just like, how did I not know this? Um, or how did I not, like, how did I not have this perception, uh, Mm. that seems so indelible to me now? Um, it just seems so odd. Um, I think, you know, reading about the road trip and hearing you talk about, you know, learning these things. Um, I think that's one of the things like learning, growing up, like you said, as a white person in, in the Midwest where I'm insulated and, I'm not challenged um, mm. kind of by any of the things that challenge so many of the people in, in the world um, to confront those things. I, well, I think one, it's a long process. And is it, do you think it's, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, how, how to explain to people how difficult it is in some cases mm. to, to, mm. to tell yourself that you have to change even though you've grown up in a place where everybody's like, why though? (laughs) Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, um, the metaphor that I use throughout the book is that Mary Beth has got this notch in her chest. Yeah. And, and what I wanted to say in using that metaphor was that it's not so much that she is a hazard to the world and that she needs to learn better, but rather that she is, she herself is hurting by not knowing this at first. And then once she knows something of what she needs to do, not dealing with it. So it's a pain in, in her own heart that she needs to deal with almost selfishly because yeah, I mean, Mary Beth meets Ida, uh, a woman who she falls in love with very quickly. Uh, <laughs> typical seventeen-year-old uh, situation. <laughs> they can't help it. <laughs> yeah, she she falls in love with a young black woman who she meets in Chicago once. <laughs> they spend one day together, and she falls completely head over heels. <laughs> um, as one does, and um, what she loves about Ida, she, you know, she loves she loves Ida because she's beautiful and because she cares about her community, but. 
But what Mary Beth really loves is that Ina represents something that she hasn't had in her life previously, which is she, Ina has got a community. Right. People outside of her family who care about her and not just that they care about her, but that she's responsible for them. And Mary Beth never felt that feeling of I'm responsible for somebody outside of myself or outside of my parents before. And I desperately want to be responsible for someone. Right. I don't just want to be loved. I really want to be responsible for someone. I want to really love somebody else. And the mistake that she makes is that she tells Ida in the very beginning, um, I want to give up my life for you. And Ina says, no, you're trying to absolve yourself Yeah. in saying that. So then Mary Beth spends basically the rest of the book trying to figure out what exactly Ida was saying because she doesn't understand it at first. She grew up Catholic, so she thinks that throwing your sword throwing yourself on the sword for another person is the best favor that you can do for them. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the yeah, highest sac- you could do. Exactly. Sacrificing yourself for another person is the best thing that you can do. And I was saying, no, it's more complicated than that. It's lifelong. You're never going to absolve yourself. It's about unraveling from these things that you've learned that society is trying to put onto you and will try to put onto you day after day after day and having the strength and the courage to unravel yourself from that and not just quickly, I'm going to be a martyr, like that will solve all of my problems, as the Catholics might say. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. That, that, I, I hope that's a message at the end is like this, Absolution is not something that's going to come with one event in your life. It's something that is going to be a day-to-day negotiation. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a journey, just like the, you know, the, it's a journey. the, the structure of the book. Um, mm. One thing that you were, when you were talking about, you know, writing it over the course of, of five years and learning as you go and, um, it reminded me of this thing I read recently, um, and, uh, Anna Quindlin has a book called write for your life. It just came out. It's awesome. It's about journaling and kind of personal writing. But, uh, one thing that, that she talks about in the book is the concept of slowing down and how journaling helps us slow down and really look at what we are doing and thinking about. And she talks about the deferred gratification of writing a novel. And, and you also have written, you know, shorter pieces. Uh, uh, you have a piece that was published uh, in the sun called long distance relationship and some other stuff that's available on your website, um, which is keelyshinners.com. So everyone check that out. Um, talk to me about the, about the difference between writing a piece like long distance relationship and this novel and does deferred gratification, come close to what it feels like to, to write a novel versus a, a short piece, an essay or, or um, even like sort of poetic shorter pieces where you're dealing with, you know, shorter chunks of writing at, at a time. How, how does it feel for you to, to write one versus the other? Yes. Uh, deferred gratification is the best. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, okay. I'm going to put myself out on a limb here and say that it's almost like a short orgasm versus a long orgasm. <laughs> okay. I can't believe I just said that on air, but I'm going for it. No, I, you know what? I, I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> okay. So I write short pieces all the time. Like It could be an essay. It could be a short story. I'm an art critic as well. So yeah. I, I do a lot of art criticism and... And those essays tend to take like three to five days to write at max. Sometimes I write them in a day, but there's something so fucking beautiful, but also painful, but gorgeous at the end of the day about working on a novel for a long period of time, years, just spending, spending every day, 
waking up thinking about your characters and going to bed thinking about them. I mean, it's almost like magic. It's almost like you get to live this parallel existence to your own. It's nothing like writing an essay where you just quickly say your opinions about this, that, and the other thing, and then the thing is done. You really get to live this experience, and that comes with no small amount of pain and no small amount of impatience, but uh, it's such a, I'd say, like a miracle of human experience that you can have this imaginary world, which is completely real and completely beautiful, that at the end of once you're finished, you can hold a book in your hands and say, this was real and I did make this. And these people who I imagined in my head for so long actually mean something to other people. I mean, that's just gorgeous. I agree completely. And the the joy of imagining all of these nooks and crannies of these people's lives and the world that they live in, even stuff that might not make it to the page. Uh, I, I agree with you. I I usually, I usually don't use the word lightly because it means weird things to me, but miracle. I I do think there's an aspect of it where it's like, it seems impossible to have Mm. that much information in Mm. my head. And like to try to describe that to someone and to make them understand, like, no, I'm like constantly living with the idea of this thing. And like you said, the characters, mm-hmm. like, have you read less by Andrew Sean Greer? No, I haven't read it. Um, so less it's uh, he, this, he's a writer and he, he and his boyfriend have just broken up and he's on a, a writing tour. Um, I, he became so real to me like that. He could walk in the door and right. I wouldn't bat an eye. And that's the the thing that, you know, I'm always, you know, you want a book to do where it's like, oh, that person, like, they could literally say hi to me one day. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I remember your entire mm. life <laughs> because of the mm. thing that I read. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There, there, there are those characters like that for me who they have a complete life of their own. And I trust that life completely with my own life. Yeah, And I, I hope to have, I know that my characters have that life in my mind, but I hope to put that on the page. Right. Getting it there. And do you think it's, you, do you think it's possible to, to bring, I, let's say 90% of that to the page or what's the, how much do you think you can get out of your head onto the page? Is it possible to get all of it? Well, this is the thing. Austin, is that at a certain point, your characters are talking to you too much right? and you have to edit them down. Oh yeah. Right. They're, they're saying things where you're like, okay, that's not relevant to the story. That's, that's going to slow the pacing down or that's, that's not going to help the reader understand the story better. Right. Like I feel like they're speaking to me in my head and I have to write to my reader who needs 10 times less information than what the characters are saying to me in my head. Right. Do you think that is that hard? Is that fun? Or are you, is it like a middle ground? Uh, I'd say, you know, I, I, I'd say I'm equipped to deal with it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm an editor when I'm not a writer, so... I am very good at editing people down to, you know, what is, what is essential or not what is essential. I don't, I I don't really like that, that idea more just like the way that the reader experiences a story is a very different experience from how it would play out in, in one's head or in real life. Right. I almost think about it as like an editor editing a bunch of, a film. So if you were to shoot a film, then you shoot a scene from a bunch of different angles and you shoot the actors doing lots of different renditions of the same scene. And the editor goes into the editing room once all of the shooting is done and says, okay, this is how we're going to pace it. And this is how 
the viewer is actually going to experience this situation, this story. Yeah. Um, I think about my fiction writing a lot like that. Like my characters are coming to me with lots of different ideas of what they want to say and how they want to say it and what is the angle. And I need to edit all of that down to what the viewer or the reader in this case is actually going to experience. I think that's a an, a really interesting way to approach it. Do you think every writer should should learn how to to edit other people's work and then bring those tools to themselves? I definitely think that it can help. Yeah. But uh, I wouldn't say that every writer should do this, that, or the other thing, and that is going to be what what makes you the writer that you can be because you know. Then a writer comes in and they don't edit anything. And it's this like postmodern, like mishmash of (laughs) all these different things, like layered one on top of the other. And it's fucking beautiful. And then I'm proved wrong. (laughs) Right. No. Yeah. There's always, always a lot of exceptions. There's so many ways to do things. Totally. Um, one thing I, I wanted to to get into right here as we're as we're starting to wrap up uh, is community. You know, your book about about community. You were talking a little bit about um, Mary Beth and you know finding you know her love in Chicago after one day and this this sense of community. And that's one thing that I I was reading your acknowledgments in the in the book, um, and then also that the interior sketches uh, were done by Daniel Shinners. Um, yes, it's my dad. Your dad. I, I wondered. Uh, I I really loved seeing that, um, oh. and seeing that that idea represented um, in multiple ways within your acknowledgments. The idea of community, not just in the story that you're writing, but in how you wrote it. Um, so seeing that Daniel Shinners did uh, sketches, and I and I wondered if it was your dad, but I wanted to check. So that's awesome. I'm glad. That is um, my dad. He's the best. And then. Yeah. How, well, how did that come about? Were you like, Oh, I want you to do something. You were on this trip with me. How did the, how did him doing sketches, how did that come about for the book? I just told him I'm writing a book about a dad and a daughter at the end of the world. And the dad is a carpenter. And at the end of the book, he does a sketch of a home for the end of the world. So my dad is a carpenter as well. Yeah. So I asked him if he would do, a sketch for a house for the end of the world. That's so great. This fucking amazing thing. Yeah. So it's very cool. I had, it. I had to use it. Very cool. It made me smile to see. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, then the other thing in your acknowledgements, you, you thank some people for uh, providing you much needed space to write. And more importantly, to take your writing seriously. Um, mm. I wanted to ask what, does it mean to, for you to take your writing seriously? And were you talking about yourself taking it seriously or other people? I think um, that particular acknowledgement was for a, a, a residency that I did here in, in Cape Town. Or not in Cape Town, it's in, in Stellenbosch in the Western Cape. Okay. And I applied for a residency to go to a farm um, outside of Cape Town and have some time to work on my book. And I was a writer who had maybe one short story to my name and maybe a handful of like articles, but, uh, these people, it's called compost art in Afrikaans. Uh, compost art is what it is in English. I was hoping you would say it because I knew, I knew I wouldn't be able to. Sure. (laughs) Um, they, they believed in me and they thought, okay, it doesn't matter if you've got one short story to your name, like you're a novelist, you can come stay here and work your novel. And honestly, that month or two that I spent just having time away from my normal life, I wrote almost everything that you read in part two in that month or two. So I really wanted to give them a a solid acknowledgement and saying that not only did you provide me the space to write, but the fact that you believed in me enough to say, yes, you've got maybe one short story to your name, but 
I'm going to consider you a novelist and you can come and stay here. I felt like I needed to give them a, a bit of a nod, a, a bit of a nod for that. Yeah. Did you think of yourself as a novelist when you were, when you were there? Well, I hadn't written a novel yet, so of course not. <laughs> <I think laughs> well, that was, that's what I'm now. curious about is, is that, do you have to think that you, I, I'm just curious about how you, you approach the idea of being like, okay, well, I'm going to write a novelist or I'm going to write a novel mm, mm. because I'm always curious about self-definition because it's something I've struggled with. I mean, I, I won't lie. I'm literally asking to try and help me <laughs> because sure. the idea of being like, yes, I'm a writer um, mm. or, or struggling with the idea of taking something that you're doing seriously. If maybe you haven't checked off, you know, imaginary boxes in your head for things that you can look at and be like, well, I, I did that thing. So obviously I'm a writer. Mm, mm. Yeah. I think that um, maybe I didn't think of myself as a novelist at the time, but I knew maybe implicitly like what, that this project was not going to stop if I got this residency, like yeah. the project was only going to, it was it, once a novel was in my head and it was getting rolling, it had to continue. It had to be finished and it yeah. had to have a publisher and it had to have this like, and I did have a mo like I had some moments cause I finished my book in February, 2020. So, or the first draft of my novel in February, 2020, when like agents were not responding to mails, publishers were not responding to emails because the pandemic had just started. Yep. And I felt like I didn't know where this was going to go, but I needed to see this novel come out into the world. There was no other option. Yeah. I couldn't let the novel die. Like almost outside of myself maybe oh shit maybe it was my own ego i don't know but <laughs> i really felt like outside of myself like this novel really needed to come up into the world and i yeah. needed to share it with people so it wasn't so much about my definition of myself as a novelist but more that the this the story was really like finding its way into the world and yeah. just really needed to be seen. I think that's an awesome place to stop. Yeah, I hope I, that's true. Well, maybe it's my <laughs> ego. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, no. I, well, before I think, I think that it's a weird mixture of of all of that stuff. Probably. I mean, when I'm yeah. writing the stuff that I'm writing, and I'm thinking like I'm not going to give up on this because I can't. Like I literally can't stop doing this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I can't stop. Like, is that my ego or I mean, probably partially sure. Yeah. Because obviously just like I know you want people to read your book. Like it's, there is that aspect of you where you're like, I, I can't stop. That is wrapped up in me wanting people to see it, but it's also wrapped up in like, I'm going to be doing it anyway. Right. It's a, and also, don't you feel like your characters would get so mad at you if you didn't show them to the world? Yeah, I th- uh, it's weird. I don't know that I've ever thought about it like that. The for me, it, it's it's almost like my characters would be sad to not have their lives made into re- uh, some form of reality, where it's like I know the right. things that they're going to be doing. And mm. I want them to be able to do those things. Like I've, I've never had a, I, like, I don't have a novel published. I've written short stories and stuff that have gotten published, but I have two books that I finished that are, that are just here with me and most likely won't be published. I, I don't know, but mm. I knew I had to finish them because right. the, the idea of taking these characters to the places that I knew they were going to go, that had to happen. Um, but the, the idea of no one seeing it is that that's the part where I'm just like, but did it matter? Like, obviously it mattered because I got the experience and I had fun and I did this thing that I loved, but ultimately like, 
what was the the outcome other than me producing this story? It's a hard thing that I struggle with, and I don't know that there's an answer or not. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I, I appreciate you talking through all that with me, and I, I really like to hearing you, you know, talk about the getting the story finished, like, because you, you literally just have to. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, you have to. And I might be delusional, but I feel like the characters are telling you, you have to finish it. You have to finish it. Otherwise I am going to be haunting your subconscious for the rest of your life. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe there is a little bit of delusion and, and, uh, sitting down to write stories. I, I, I think maybe there almost has to be. Oh, but... it's crazy. It's crazy. It's a crazy <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, but like you were talking about earlier, like that, like beautiful pain <laughs> of, of just yeah. doing it over and over and over again. It's, mm. it's kind of impossible to, to give up once you get to a point where you, you realize how great it is. And a miracle of human achievement that you can imagine not just one life, but multiple lives outside of yourself. Right. It is. And bring them and bring them to fruition, bring them into the world. I mean, that's just insane. That is mentally evolutionarily insane. It's beautiful. And I know lots of people do it, but it's fucking beautiful. And I would argue that it is also a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a a great place um, to stop. Uh, I, I've loved having you on and getting to chat and and hearing your insights into writing the book. Um, Everyone, please check it out. It's out from perennial press called how to build a home for the end of the world. Keely Shinners, Uh, go to Keely Shinners.com. Keely, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Austin. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, like I said, go to keelyshinners.com uh, or go check out Perennial Press's website uh, or bookstores to see if you can grab a copy of Keely Shinner's novel. Thank you very much to Keely uh, again. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Thank you to everyone at Perennial Press uh, for helping out. Uh, and thank you, as always, for giving a listen. Check me out, austinrwilson.com or on Twitter at austinrwilson. And keep your eye on my podcast Twitter account, which is, in fact, ledger underscore podcast. There's more news coming about more interviews here very soon. I'll see you then.